The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Will Appleton with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for December 31st, 2022. Content moderation has been back in the news this month in a big way, with the European Union expressing concern over Twitter's new content moderation practices or the possibility of lame duck legislative reforms to competition rules among big tech platforms. For today's Archive episode, I chose an episode from March 2021. In the episode, Evelyn Dueck and Quinta Jurassic sat down with Genevieve Lakier to discuss what First Amendment doctrine actually says, how its history might be different from what you think, how to grapple with the First Amendment in the age of the internet, and more. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 11th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation and misinformation. It's basically impossible to have a conversation about content moderation without someone crying First Amendment at some point. But the cultural conception of the First Amendment doesn't always match the legal conception. To help untangle what the First Amendment is and isn't, Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Genevieve Laker an assistant professor at the University of Chicago Law School, and First Amendment expert. We got Genevieve to walk us through what First Amendment doctrine actually says, how its history might be quite different from what you think, and what the dynamism of the doctrine over time, and the current composition of the Supreme Court, might suggest about the First Amendment's possible futures for grappling with the internet. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 11th. Content moderation and the First Amendment for dummies. So, Genevieve, thank you so much for joining us. We wanted to have you on to basically do content moderation and the First Amendment for dummies, where you are the First Amendment expert and we are the dummies. And I think that's a really important thing to do because the First Amendment gets thrown around in basically every conversation about this issue. And there's this cultural conception of it. But, you know, it it might actually be useful to look at the actual doctrine at, at some point. So to start off, how annoying do you find public conversations about the First Amendment as a First Amendment expert? Is there a big gap between like lay conception and expert conception of what the law is here? Yes. Well, thank you for having me on because I love talking about the intersection between content moderation and the First Amendment. And I think there is a big gap, but I do not find it annoying. I find it actually really revealing and interesting. So the biggest gap is that 
ordinary people <laughs> simply do not believe that the First Amendment is as limited as it is. You know, we are used to thinking of the First Amendment as this really enormously powerful, enormously important guarantee of freedom of speech in the United States, which is in certain respects. But uh, the state action doctrine, particularly as it is understood right now, or, you know, in the last few decades, as it has been understood, say, by the Roberts Court, uh, imposes really significant limits on the reach of the First Amendment that ordinary people, I think, don't understand. And we saw this a lot in the wake of the, the decision by the social media platforms to kick Trump off Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. You know, there were a lot of discussion in the public domain, including by Republican politicians, about how these decisions violated the First Amendment. But private social media companies are not state actors, so the, they are not directly obligated by the First Amendment to do or not do anything. That's basically a perfect roadmap for all of the the points that we want to cover today. One of my one of my favorite New Yorker cartoons is this uh, comic of a bunch of judges on the bench and one is turning to the other saying, do you ever have one of those days where everything feels unconstitutional? And <laughs> sometimes when we talk about the First Amendment, it feels like that comic, right? Like everyone's sort of proposing things and saying, well, no, the First Amendment will knock that out. The First Amendment will knock that out. You can't do anything. But we know that that's not true. We know that the government can regulate speech in certain circumstances. So when can the government arbitrate truth? Like we know that there are laws for fraud or misleading and deceptive conduct. What are the limits of when the government can regulate on the basis of falsity? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's leave aside this question of state action, because I take it we're going to return to that in a little bit and just think about ordinarily, like when the government regulates, uh, when can it be the arbiter of truth? It's interesting that you call your podcast Arbiters of Truth, because um, I've long wanted to write a paper called something like The Truth Police about when the government can and cannot police truth. So, you know, in fact, there are lots of instances. I think we're accustomed to thinking that the First Amendment prevents the government from ever making decisions about what's true or what's false, but these decisions get made every single day in courtrooms across the United States. So I think that there are at least three big buckets of law in which we are constantly, judges are constantly deciding about truth and falsity. So the first and most obvious is the law of defamation, which is an incredibly uh, libel and defamation, which is an incredibly er important area of civil litigation and uh, has really complicated political economic effects. You know, there are lots of critics of the law of defamation, but it's not going anywhere really important and can have really significant effects, I think, as we're seeing now, where um, news media are changing the way they report on potentially misinformation or disinformation um, stories in order to prevent civil liability. So that's one very familiar, very important area where truth and falsity really does matter. A second area is regulation of the commercial marketplace. So, you know, if we think of ourselves, as I think we should, as capitalist society, in which maybe one of the sort of most important areas of human interaction and regulation is the market, the market uh, truths in the marketplace are really heavily regulated. Commercial advertising. So if you lie in a commercial ad, that can be criminalized, uh, subject to a certain amount of First Amendment constraint, but there's false and misleading speeches, uh, commercial speeches categorically unprotected uh, by the First Amendment. But the same is true when you are lying in contractual relations. Like if you make a false representation in a contractual, in contract negotiations, that can void the contract. If a company lies on its securities disclosures, that's also a problem. So when we're talking about regulating the marketplace, it's pretty pervasive, extensive and um, detailed regulation of truth and falsity without really any concern. And then there's a third really big bucket, which is the law of fraud. 
So, you know, if someone lies in order to get a material benefit from someone else, be that someone else, a private person or the government, they can be criminalized and they can be held civilly liable. And we can think about a whole range of kinds of fraud cases, including immigration fraud, ordinary commercial fraud, people pretending to be government actors, government officials in order to get something, right? Someone impersonating the police. None of those really pose a First Amendment problem. And so the First Amendment is really powerful, really important, but it has very significant limits. And it has significant limits because the courts have recognized that there are that speech can be really harmful and certain kinds of speech pose greater harms than allowing them to proliferate freely uh, produces benefits. But the important point, I think, for contemporary debates about like how to think about lies today is that none of those are considered sort of areas of political speech. You can, you can regulate commercial lies, you can regulate fraud, you can regulate impersonation, right? You can regulate defamatory speech. But when it comes to like the core kinds of democratic speech, political claims about politics, we don't really typically allow the government to regulate those. I think because of the view that those are inherently contested and contestable, and it's up to democratic citizens to judge the truth or falsity or the correctness or incorrectness of those claims. And so to say that the First Amendment allows there to be a lot of regulation, that's true, but there's also like really important arenas of public life, in which at least up until recently, it has been for several decades now, at least, it has, the, the rule has been pretty clear uh, that the government is barred from regulating. It's funny, you you note the, the title of the podcast because we picked the name after Mark Zuckerberg's famous comment that he didn't want uh-huh. Facebook to, to be the arbiter of truth. So I think as you've sketched out, you know, there's uh, more, more arbitration in some domains than others, perhaps. I wanted to, to drill down on, on one aspect of this. So we obviously, we know that the government can regulate private communications technology, sort of the channels through which speech passes. Can you walk us through what the government's powers are there and to what extent that they're limited? (laughs) I mean, that is a really difficult question because I don't think we fully know. You know, we have a lot of tea leaves when it comes to social media companies, but as technology evolves, it raises all new kinds of problems. So I'm going to just speak generally what we know, but I, I actually think, and this is, I'm sort of optimistic about this. I think that there's actually a lot of room to move in the doctrine when it comes to the regulation of social media companies. Okay, but ordinarily, the government is allowed to do content neutral regulation pretty easily, so long as it isn't targeting any particular kind of speech based on its content and treating it differently than other kinds of speech. It can regulate communicative practice um, so long as it has sort of reasonable justification. And so I think that there's a strong argument that it can do kinds of privacy regulation, and maybe it could even do uh, when we're thinking about communication technologies it can determine sort of due process rights, perhaps. So long as that's content neutral, it's a pretty differential standard of scrutiny. The government can also regulate, has historically been understood to regulate common carriers pretty extensively. So the the way the court has explained this is when there are communication technology companies that their primary job is simply to act as conduits for speech, rather than to make editorial decisions about what speech to include and not include. And here we're thinking about telegraph companies and telephone companies. Those are the sort of classic communications common carriers. The the view is that they're not really acting in the speech marketplace as speakers. They're just conduits. And therefore, they themselves don't really have robust First Amendment rights. 
the rights that we have to care about is the rights of pe- of the speakers, the people who use the technologies. And so when we're talking about common carriers, the restrictions on their own freedom, the regulations that you can impose on them are pretty significant. But what the court has said is when you have communication companies that don't do that, when they make editorial choices about what speech to promote or not promote or to transmit or not transmit, or even maybe to rank and order, then the First Amendment restrictions on what the government can do become more significant. And then we really you know, so long as the government can justify them as content neutral regulations of speech, maybe. But if it's going to be interfering with the ability of these companies to make editorial choices for themselves about what speech to transmit or what speech to promote, then things get really much trickier. And it's interesting that you say that you're optimistic about the the future development, because I mean, part of it, I guess, is looking at the history and looking at the way that the law has developed and adjusted over time to new communications technologies. I mean, it's it's sort of like we and the law have a freak out every time there's a new communications technology. You sent me this great case recently about the Telegraph from 1940, where the First Circuit Court of Appeals said, speed is the essence of the service, and that it would be totally unreasonable to ask telegraph companies to examine the content of their transmissions for defamation, because the intolerable volume of, and hold on to your hats here, 200 million messages annually. And like for context, Facebook will probably have hosted that many messages by the end of the day, if not the end of this podcast. So given that there is sort of this this need, this constant need and an adjustment of the law sort of developing to regulate new technologies as they arrive, I mean, is, is that what you see in the doctrine? I mean, it sort of seems, is that where your optimism comes from? Like it's inevitable that the law will have to adjust? Maybe. So I have so many different thoughts in response to what you just said. So one is, hell yes. (laughs) You know, I think people have just such short historical memories. There is such a freak out right now about social media, and we do forget. I just think it's really important to emphasize that every time we've had a novel technology, there has been a kind of collective freak out. And, And maybe unsurprisingly, and this isn't to say everyone was wrong to freak out. I mean, I think these new communication technologies, they really do raise new deep social problems. And so it might be appropriate for everyone to get freaked out, but this isn't the first or the last time at this rodeo. And every time we get a new technology or a really important one, it seems like we go through multiple stages. I think of it as like the stages of technological grief, right? Like at first there's this huge optimism about the democratic potential of the medium. And then often in response to that optimism, you know, a sort of very deregulatory posture and then what happens in the wake of deregulation is uh, some large, powerful private company gobbles up all the resources and all of a sudden you have a very concentrated market and then you have maybe bad monopolistic practices. And then there's a freak out about what are we going to do? This democratic potential has been ruined and how are we going to develop regulatory strategies to handle it? And then in response to that, a slow, often evolutionary effort to try and figure out how to adequately regulate this technology to not destroy it, but at the same time prevent rapacious uh, monopolistic practices. Now, that history, I mean, I just think we should remember that history. I think it's really important to understand that we that there are a lot of different uh, regulatory approaches that have been adopted over time and to recognize that there's just many different things we might do if we had the political and institutional will to do it. Our hands are not tied. But on the other hand, that history alone does not give me optimism because I think one can read the history of communication technologies in America somewhat as a tragedy. I mean, I don't want to say that 
too much because, of course, I, I really do like our, there's lots of, to like about where we are right now. I mean, I think the technological evolution in our mass public sphere and the increasingly low barriers to entry, I think those are all generally really good things. Um, I think we have a really vibrant mass public sphere. And so I can't be too much of a tragedy queen about it. But at the same time, I don't want to minimize the fact that our regulatory responses have, have often been insufficient and, and um, deeply flawed. So, um, so, for example, when it came to telephone and telegraph companies, our response was to impose common carrier obligations on these companies, but not really to do that much to uh, limit the concentrated power of the private companies that controlled the wires. I mean, we tried, right? We broke up the baby bells. There was antitrust efforts. Um, but the view, I think, of a lot of scholars is that those were um, only very had very limited success. And so we've had really powerful private entities controlling these really important conduits of communication for a long time. And then when we think about radio and television broadcasting, again, you know, people right now look back at the fairness doctrine with fondness and maybe it's all comparative, maybe compared to complete deregulatory approach that we have now, it was better but you can think about the fairness doctrine as the regulatory response to a decision by the federal government to really hand over the radio waves to commercial for-profit broadcasters at a time when there were lots of non-commercial university and experimental and local community radio broadcasters who wanted access to the licenses. And we might have had a much more diverse radio and then television broadcast public sphere than we did. But it was because the federal government basically just <laughs> allowed the commercial for-profit companies to control the airwaves that then they felt obligated to impose obligations on those commercial entities to uh, you know, allow a variety of different voices. You might think, actually, it'd be way better not to ever have had the fairness doctrine. It's very unclear how effective it actually was at producing really healthy public debate, but just had you know, underlying much more a diverse, a varied, not fully capitalist or commercial a landscape of ownership and control. And so, you know, to say that we have this long history and we have lots of regulatory options doesn't mean that all those regulatory options are the best. And so right now I'm I'm optimistic insofar as we have reached a point in part because our strategy towards social media companies and also I think right now to television as well, because I don't want to just be thinking about social media companies. I think television, I think Fox News is also a huge part of the problem right now in our mass public sphere. I think it's produced a situation where the problems with our current regulatory arrangement are so glaring that there is sort of massive <laughs> popular resistance to it. And so maybe we think that's really bad that we got to a stage where things are so messed up that people are really, really angry at Facebook and really angry maybe at Twitter and less angry than they should be maybe at YouTube and at Fox News, but pretty unhappy about the current arrangement. But I think courts are responsive to political moods and political wins. And I think that there is enough ambiguity in First Amendment doctrine that nothing is predetermined. I don't think anyone can tell you 100% if a case about, say, a federal regulation of social media companies came before the court, it definitely is going to rule this way or that way. I just think it's a little, the cases are open-ended, the, the rules, the doctrines are open-ended enough that court, there's a lot of room to move. And the fact that there is such political concern, popular concern about the concentrated power that companies like Facebook and Twitter have to make decisions about, you know, really core sites of democratic public debate. I think courts are going to be sensitive to that. And so I'm optimistic for that reason, not overly optimistic, but I think it's a really interesting 
and generative time to be thinking about freedom of speech. And my only concern is that the maybe First Amendment fetishism, the tendency of people to really think that the First Amendment is the first and last word on all these matters, is going to lead those involved in these debates to be less creative and less optimistic than they could be because they're going to think that the that, you know, the answers are all already there for us when I don't think they are. So let's talk a little bit more then about what you call First Amendment fetishism. I think there, there's a, a kind of a myth of the First Amendment that uh, Americans learned. I certainly learned it in, you know, elementary school about First Amendment is America's, you know, it's our proudest boast from the founding. It's mm. first, right? It's the most important. How, <laughs> how longstanding is that First Amendment doctrine that Americans imagine exists, really? I just want to jump in to say I love that you learned this at elementary school because I have this theory that it must be in the water somewhere. So <laughs> that's great that it, it, it comes in so early. Well, actually, uh, Quinta, do you know that it's, it wasn't first? When James Madison sent the amendments to the federal constitution to, to uh, I guess, to Congress, um, it was third. That's that's one of my my favorite facts to tell people, actually. <laughs> well, I guess it was to the states to get ratified. There were two that were not enacted. So it was never supposed to be first. It wasn't. Yeah, I, I think I think it gets way too much credit because it's first and everyone thinks, oh, well, it's first. It must be the best. OK, so, yeah, I think there is a sense. There's this view that the First Amendment means what it means today and has always meant that. And this isn't totally surprising that this is the view. I mean, I think this is how people think about law in general, that there are these core amendments or constitutional provisions, and they must always mean the same thing. And in fact, <laughs> if we look at history, it's clear that they don't. But also the Supreme Court has contributed to this because it keeps insisting. This is like one of the qualitative features, the interesting features about the Roberts Court's First Amendment jurisprudence. And one of the things I have to say I like least about it is that it keeps insisting that its current understanding of the First Amendment is what the First Amendment has always meant even though, uh, on my view, the current understanding of the First Amendment is really, really different than both what the First Amendment meant, say, in the 19th century, before the emergence of the modern First Amendment, but even in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. So constitutional scholars are really used to talking about a thing that happened in the New Deal period called the New Deal Revolution, right? constitutional revolution. There was like a major shift in how we understood the Constitution, away from a Lochnerian laissez-faire approach, which I agree with. But I think there was a, another very important shift that I think of as the Burger Court counter-revolution that happened in the 1970s. And certainly when it comes to the First Amendment, it had a profound effect as well. Our modern First Amendment doctrine, our contemporary First Amendment doctrine, I guess I should say, really dates in many respects back to the 1970s. And then the stuff from the 40s, 50s and 60s, obviously there's continuities, but it looked different in a whole number of ways. For purposes of our conversation today, one of the most significant ways in which First Amendment doctrine changed in the 70s was the court embraced a much more rigid state action doctrine than it had before. The court in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, I think it wasn't entirely clear about what exactly state action meant, but it, it was clear that there were circumstances in which uh, what the First Amendment meant was that the government could not aid and abet, couldn't empower, uh, had an obligation maybe also to prevent powerful private actors from acting in ways that deprived other private persons of their free speech rights. The court in the 40s and 50s and 60s was really concerned with not just government restrictions on speech, but private restrictions on speech and how these might also threaten the First Amendment. Now, it didn't, the 
the court never held that private people were directly obligated under the First Amendment, but they did think, for example, that courts maybe couldn't enforce the property rights of powerful private actors when the effect of doing so was to deprive other less powerful private actors of their ability to speak or to listen or to participate in democratic public debate. And then there are a number of cases in which the court suggests that Congress maybe had an affirmative obligation under the First Amendment to act in order to ensure that all America, all members of the political community could, you know, vigorously exercise their free speech rights. So that was the First Amendment in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. The First Amendment that I, I guess people learn about in grade school, I don't know, the First Amendment that people think about today that is uh, enforced today is a very different beast. You know, since the 1970s, and I think the Roberts Court has really doubled down on this, the view is that what the First Amendment guarantees is that the government may not discriminate on the basis of the content of speech, but that private people are completely free to do whatever they want. And also that in many circumstances, the First Amendment not only prevents the government from discriminating, but it also prevents the government from restricting the ability of private people <laughs> to discriminate. It's like it sets up two totally different regimes. The government may not act in particular ways, but they may not discriminate. But private people are allowed to discriminate. And the, the idea here is that that's how the marketplace of ideas sorts the good ideas from the bad. That's just how we get the good things that the First Amendment is supposed to get us. It's this sort of, it's this very market-centric notion that we just want to empower private people, whoever they may be, whether they're the private person that is Facebook, whether they're Mark Zuckerberg, whether they're me, whether they're the people listening to this podcast, you're all just totally free. This is the, the vision to make whatever speech choices you want. And the government is really has to sit on its hands when it comes to regulating the speech marketplace. That notion of a really laissez-faire First Amendment, a deregulatory First Amendment, it's pretty recent. And I think one of the reasons why the issue of how the First Amendment applies to the regulation of social media companies is maybe thornier and trickier than the issue of how the First Amendment applied to radio broadcasters or television broadcasters, it may have nothing to do with the technology per se, but where we are with the First Amendment. The First Amendment, when they were figuring out the regulatory rules for television and radio, was much less deregulatory than it is today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. 
it was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. 
So that's great. I just really wanted to make sure that we got on the record that it it wasn't even first and it's only a couple of decades old. (laughs) So we've mentioned state action doctrine a number of times, but maybe our listeners would know it better as the, but Facebook is a private actor, the First Amendment doesn't apply argument. State action doctrine has been called by scholars notoriously confusing, if not incoherent, a conceptual disaster area, and a torchless search for a way out of a damp, echoing cave. So without asking you to make perfect sense of it for us in the remaining time we have left on this podcast, the broad argument is basically correct, right? The First Amendment does not apply to Facebook or Twitter. Yes. And can I just say in response to those wonderful quotes, I love those quotes, they're the best, You know, I think those are quotes that are describing state action doctrine in the 40s, the 50s and the 60s. State action doctrine is nowhere near as confusing today just because it's so much narrower. Like the reason state action doctrine earlier on was so confusing is because the court really wanted to take account of private action, but didn't want to completely get rid of the state action doctrine. So it wasn't this sort of funny, weird uh, intermediate position. And the result was, I, I totally agree, a lot of really confusing cases. I think state action doctrine is not really confusing anymore. I think it's no longer a torchless search out of a damp cave. I just think it is incredibly destructive (laughs) because it it is based on a, I think, a false idea. I think that there's like very, very deep problems with contemporary state action doctrine. So yes, just to go back to basics, the basic insight is correct. Today, the idea is that if you're a private actor, meaning you're not a government official, you're not a government institution, and also you're not controlled or coerced by the government because the court doesn't want to say well then the government can just make these dummy private corporations and never be bound by the first amendment or any constitutional provision so so long as you can show you're actually meaningfully independent of government actors or government institutions which obviously facebook and twitter etc are then you are a private actor and therefore the first amendment uh, doesn't bind you it protects you That is, you know, you're not obligated under the First Amendment to do or not do or say or not say anything, but you are protected by the First Amendment against government regulation. You know, and I think this is really problematic, but it's not that I think that the state action doctrine should go away entirely. I I do think it makes sense that government officials and government actors, they're just, they are differently positioned, both with respect to the Constitution, their job is to run the government that is organized by the constitution. So you might think they have a close relationship to the constitution that the ordinary members of the political community. And also just sociologically, functionally, like the government's just a different kind of power player than a private corporation. It sets entrance and exit rules like of geographic mobility. It can put you in jail, right? It has all these kinds of power that private actors don't, just don't, no matter how powerful they are. And so I don't think that we should totally get rid of a kind of doctrinal distinction between the state action and the state actor and private actors. The thing that I really don't like about current state action doctrine is that it treats all private actors as completely identical. The view is, you know, that the government is really powerful and so we have to limit the government's power, but the marketplace of ideas is best promoted by just giving private actors freedom to make choices for themselves and then seeing what happens. But that vision of the world completely ignores the really power, tremendously important power that private actors like Facebook or Twitter or AT&T or Fox News or NBC Broadcasting have to act in ways that are really contrary to a healthy democratic public, to engage in viewpoint discrimination, to censor speech they don't like, to act in a very 
conservative manner, maybe because they don't like the speech they're restricting, but also maybe just because they're worried about the corporate bottom line. Current state action doctrine treats all private actors, no matter how powerful or how powerless, as equivalent. And that's just, that doesn't map on very well. That does, that's not a good or subtle or nuanced portrait of how the world actually works. And it makes it really difficult to, for the government to do anything about private censorship. I completely agree that it seems fairly straightforward now. I mean, the state action doctrine, I mean, Mm -hmm. as recently as 2019, the Supreme Court held in an opinion written by Justice Kavanaugh that when a private entity provides a forum for speech, the private entity is not ordinarily constrained by the First Amendment because the private entity is not a state actor. The private entity may thus exercise editorial discretion over the speech and speakers in the forum. And, you know, this could be what you might call a judicial subtweet, right? The the, the question of whether social media companies could be restricted by the First Amendment had been a little bit in the air after a Kennedy judgment in a case called Packingham. And this is Kavanaugh swatting that down pretty conclusively, saying no, uh, that the it's not a state actor, and so the First Amendment doesn't apply. And this was, funnily enough, something that, that liberals came to really embrace in the wake of the, the great deplatforming, as it's come to be known, when Trump was banned from Twitter and Facebook and Parler was knocked off a bunch of services as well, because the, the argument was, well, it's not censoring, they're private actors, they can do what they want. But you've written with some co-authors in Slate and the LPE blog recently about why uh, liberals shouldn't perhaps be so quick to do so. And I sort of completely agree that it suffers from both short-sightedness and short-term memory. So why don't you walk us through a little bit in, in a little bit more detail what your argument is? Okay, great. But can I just say one thing about that Kavanaugh opinion as well? Yeah, please. <laughs> I wrote, I wrote uh, for the EC, ACS, uh, the American Constitution Society year in review, I wrote a little essay about that opinion. So I have lots of thoughts about it. I'll just note that it was Kavanaugh's first First Amendment opinion. So he was not just subtweeting. I love that. He was subtweeting <laughs> Kennedy opinion. But he was also, I think, really putting down his marker as someone who really thinks of himself as a First Amendment person, but is super duper committed to the contemporary state action doctrine. That's the opinion that famously and infamously has the line, the bigger the government, the smaller the person. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a very deregulatory view of the First Amendment, that we really want to just allow the private marketplace to go forth and do whatever it wants. And so if there is cause for pessimism, as opposed to what I was talking about earlier, my optimism, it's that I think that the even though the political winds on state action doctrine are shifting and liberals are embracing it and our conservatives are really beginning to have a lot of hesitation about it, on the court, however, there's no indication that there's any desire to back away from the very rigid state action doctrine I was describing earlier. If anything, they're opposite. I think the current court, the sort of Trump court, is going to be more committed to it, and Kavanaugh is going to lead the way. Okay, so why do I think that, uh, what's the argument about why liberals are making a mistake when they embrace a rigid state action doctrine? So I guess there's like two different ways in which I think we can make this argument. One is just sort of philosophical (laughs) that, you know, liberals, to the extent that they trace their lineage to progressives, they think of themselves as progressives. And the idea behind progressive movement is that we are worried about economic concentration of power. We're worried about the inordinate power that corporations play in the society. And we think that the rules are stacked against the little guy and that this is both bad for equality, but also bad for society in general to have powerful corporations setting the rules. 
you know, this has been a theme on the left throughout the entire 20th century, um, but it's a really significant and uh, important part of the discourse of the left today. I mean, think about the revulsion at Citizens United and the real anxiety about corporate power uh, in the 2016 presidential election and the 2020 presidential election. Embracing a strong view of the state action doctrine, as many liberals did, many people did in the wake of the great, great deplatforming, is simply embracing this idea of corporate power. I mean, that's what it's doing. That's what it's saying. The corporations are the ones who get to make these decisions. And we want to allow the corporations to do it so long as they exercise this power in the way that we want them to. And, you know, to some degree, this is a reaction against the deregulatory or laissez-faire Supreme Court and First Amendment jurisprudence I've been talking about. The idea here is that, well, the court is going to be so hard to change, uh, but corporations are more sensitive, more receptive to consumer outrage and changing political winds. And so you might think the, the view is that even if ordinarily we're worried about corporate power, we recognize that maybe corporations are easier to work on than the, than the court. Um, and so we should be happy for corporations to be the ones in charge of making these um, speech regulating decisions. So I think that must be the underlying calculus. But that's both at a short term, a medium term and a long term um, perspective, that seems to me really wrong, <laughs> problematic, because, of course, corporations are sensitive to consumer decision making, but they are for profit entities. And so ultimately, they're only responsive to this decision making to the extent it affects their bottom line. The incentive is always going to be to limit what the public can know or to give it only as much as it, you know, the public wants to know what the corporations are doing. So you get, say, a certain amount of transparency, but no more that is dangerous. And then to only respond in ways that are going to ultimately maximize the corporate bottom line. But we, there's no reason to think that corporate profit making is going to be the same thing, is going to lead to the same content rules as we might think an interest in sort of the health of the democratic marketplace would lead us to. And so while I understand why there might be real frustration with the judicial doctrine and we're thinking about, you know, government actors making these kinds of decisions, I think it's short-sighted to believe in the, the, that the corporations are going to do a better job or a more trustworthy job, uh, even if it seems like a, right now, I think there has been there's lots of evidence that corporations are in the short term much more responsive to political pressure. In the medium or long term, I just don't think there's any reason to think that's going to lead to a better overall public sphere. Let's make that a, a little more concrete. Yeah. So so returning specifically to the, the great deplatforming, Trump being kicked off Facebook, Twitter, Shopify, all these platforms after the January 6th riot. Do you think that was the wrong thing for the platforms to do? I don't think so. Um, I think Trump was really dangerous. Uh, I don't know how to think about when they should have kicked him off. I think that's actually a much more difficult question, right? Because he is the, he was the president. His tweets were very newsworthy. They were very illuminating in all kinds of ways, good ways and bad ways. You knew a lot about what he was thinking and doing. And so, you know, a strong argument could be made that the platforms should have wanted to keep it up for as long as possible. But certainly after the invasion of the Capitol, it seems totally sensible to think that the, the, speech, the speech is really inciting violence. It's really, really dangerous and to take it down. Whether or not that ban should be permanent, I, on my personal view, I don't think we should permanently ban people from social media. Um, that feels too much like 
sending them to Australia or something, right? Like permanent banishment or exile. Ouch! Ouch! (laughs) I mean... How lucky they should be to get sent permanently to Australia. (laughs) Yes, but we no longer have transport as like an appropriate punishment for crime. They're lucky if they can, you know, afford to go, more power to them. But to be pushed out, to be exiled, maybe we don't think that that's right. And so... To be exiled from the digital public sphere, I think that's a pretty heavy penalty, but certainly an indefinite ban and the great deplatforming, uh, I, I don't have any problem with that decision. But I do have a problem with the you know unconstrained power that it reveals the platforms to have. And so I would vastly prefer there to be some democratically accountable, democratic legitimate, legitimate entity making the rules that the platforms apply when they're making these crucial decisions about who can speak or not speak. Do you you disagree? I'm sort of curious. Yeah, no, I I mean, I think I, I broadly agree with that. But here's the part that I get stuck on, right? The idea that it should be made by more democratically legitimate institutions who could be who could object to that that sounds fantastic absolutely i don't like mark zuckerberg making such important decisions by himself depending on you know what he had for breakfast that morning but when i try and make that concrete yeah. i struggle to come up with a law that would regulate that situation except for some very no good very bad ones and i don't know like where and how we sit that decision making power because you know obviously in in part the problem was it was a government actor and so i mean do you have thoughts about how to to make that more concrete yes although they're still early on i mean maybe i only have no bad no good very bad but maybe i have no good only slightly bad ideas um so let's see so first you know, one of the big problems here is First Amendment incitement doctrine. It becomes really hard to think about this problem, in part because since the late 1960s, the court has said that so long as it's a, you know, once we think that the First Amendment applies, the government is making these decisions, you can only punish someone for speech because it incites violence, as I think is the sort of the core worry here with Trump's speech, when they both specifically intend to incite violence, and violence is likely to occur imminently. So I think with Trump's tweets, we can say there's, you know, a good likelihood that violence was going to occur or is going to occur, so long as there is sufficient sympathy, political support for his position. I think that that's not so hard to establish, maybe not so hard. But it's given what he was tweeting and He's pretty careful, I think, in some ways about his communication. It's not obvious to me that there was specific intent. He can always say, oh, yes, I was just trying to get people to have a peaceful protest or in the future, I'm just getting people to exercise their rights, their First Amendment rights to protest, you know, the rampant election fraud that I claim happened uh, in the 2020 election or whatever. And so the so the first stumbling block, and I think maybe part of the reason why people on the left think this is great that the platforms are doing it, is the doctrine itself. Like, how would you even devise a rule that doesn't immediately come into conflict with the First Amendment? But I think that's a sign of the problem with the First Amendment. I mean, maybe it's a sign if there's this widely shared view, and asterisk that, how widely shared is this? But I certainly have this view, that the platforms acted appropriately when they took down Trump's speech because it was incitement and because he was likely to engage in incitement again. But it doesn't qualify as incitement under the First Amendment. Maybe we need to really think seriously about the First Amendment rules. And so let's just assume then that we that this puts pressure on the doctrine and we change our incitement rules. Well, then I don't know why you couldn't have you know, government rules about 
the context, the conditions under which platforms can make the decision to deplatform someone for incitement. When there is some kind of credible reason to believe that the speech is likely to lead to violence, I mean, we can we can think about the language, and maybe then the person who is deplatformed or excluded has a right of appeal, which one would want some basic minimum due process rules, because otherwise, how do you ensure that these these frameworks are being applied in any kind of even-handed manner? And then, yeah, I don't know. I mean, would you want this to end up in court? That seems like given the scale of an amount of speech circulated through the platforms, a kind of individualized judicial determination in each case would be difficult. But you could have sort of, as you have often when it comes to, say, the public utilities, there are some somewhat stripped down um, due process and then adversarial procedures to try and adjudicate the correctness of these decisions and hold them up to some sort of clear standard of you have to satisfy incitement or you have to be whatever abusive or harassing a whole set of categories of kinds of speech that can be taken down all of this intended to uh, prevent the platforms just making arbitrary and capricious decision making or acting in a very viewpoint discriminatory manner that doesn't seem terribly hard to me i mean i think the difficulty is trying to figure out what are the rules that we think should apply and whether or not the rules that apply in the first amendment context whether that's sufficient here. And I think there's this maybe view that the First Amendment rules as they apply to the government or to the sort of streets and parks and sidewalks, to the physical public sphere, maybe those aren't appropriate when it comes to the digital public sphere, simply because the digital public sphere, things move so quickly, there is fragmentation. There, I think there is this view maybe that speech in the on social media is more dangerous than speech in the real world. And I don't know how to think about that. I think that's actually the sort of really interesting question that people have to grapple with right now. But in terms of just thinking about procedures and how do we get the companies to abide by a set of rules that are supposed to prevent them from being discriminatory or arbitrary, that doesn't seem to me incredibly difficult. Although obviously there is this challenge about just the scale of speech. I mean, Evelyn, when you were saying very bad, no good solutions, what were you thinking of? Well, I mean, there are some very bad, no good laws coming out around the world. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> of saying, true. you know, private platforms can't kick off government actors ever. So yeah. we've seen that in some some countries. You know, it, it was this funny moment after the Great Deplatforming where a bunch of politicians who were no not known for their friendliness towards Trump, came out and said, oh, no, I think the, the social media platforms have done the wrong thing, including Angela Merkel. And, you know, it's it's kind of like, yeah. first they came for Donald Trump and I said nothing. Um, <laughs> you could definitely see that sort of going through their their minds. And, I mean, I guess the other, the other real question that I have is where do you put the decision-making authority? Like you could say, well, we adjust incitement doctrine and we we have some democratically legitimate institution decide that. My concerns there are first like pace, mm-hmm. like because I think you're right that the courts would be the obvious answer. Like obviously we wouldn't want the executive making that decision in this circumstance and, and, and not Congress, but then the courts are slow. And I just, I see Mark sitting in Silicon Valley and, and the, the capital riots going on. And I, I don't, particularly, like, I kind of think that there's just going to be forever this category of decisions that either the law can't reach because doctrine restrains the government too much, or Mm -hmm. the pace of change and the pace of events is too fast for the law to be the appropriate actor, that at the end of the day, somehow this decision-making power is always going to be in the hands of these corporations to a certain extent. And I don't know how you get rid of that. Yeah. Okay. So a bunch of thoughts. So one is, 
maybe you're right. Maybe there is just this deep, irresolvable problem. And that might be just the, the problem produced by the fact that we've given over control of these really important mass public spaces to private companies. And maybe then the only response is to develop government-run or public-run alternatives. Um, Ethan Zuckerberg, I think, is working on uh, things along those lines. And so we might imagine that that would be an approach. And that is certainly an alternative a sort of um, view of how to correct the evils of the current mass public sphere, which is just to find other entities to run these platforms. The problem is really that they're privately owned and run. But I don't know. I don't know if it's inevitable. I mean, I, I myself am torn about this question because I, I think that there are deep problems with handing over control of our democratic public sphere to private actors, and the fact that the United States has always done it and always done it, or since the mid nineteenth century has done it, and has done it to a much greater extent than other countries. We we spend much less on public broadcasting and public media, and we give much more power to private entities. That is a problem. So I'm sympathetic to the, this deep discomfort with the fact that the private companies, by virtue of the fact that they're the, the ones who are owning and sort of the first responders in a way, they're always going to be making really important decisions. But I don't think that means that there's nothing law can do. And again, just looking to history, I think there's at least two different approaches that we might think might be appropriate here. So one is private-public partnership. So in the early New Deal period, sort of in response to the first Gilded Age, I think we're now living through the second Gilded Age, there was an effort to have these sort of quasi-governmental bodies where you would have uh, government actors or representatives from civil society, sort of public interest, public-spirited actors, and then the relevant corporate actors from the markets or the economic sectors that they were regulating come together to devise collective rules, rules of the road. And so you could imagine the same thing here. And an alternative, although this definitely would run into the First Amendment as it's currently understood, is, uh, as some have suggested, a kind of federal agency that is charged with making the kind of very detailed technical regulatory decisions about the rules of the road for social media companies. So we have the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, when it comes to labor law. And the NLRB makes are really fine-grained on, you know, determinations about, so just think about speech, the speech regulation policies of private employers vis-a-vis unions and workers who are engaged in collective action all the time, and is constantly adjusting and responding to changing political events. And you might imagine something of the same sort here. Now, of course, it is true, just as it is when it comes to labor law, that the private companies are going to be making the first order decisions. They're setting up the rules for their workers, but then workers, or in this case, users, can appeal to this federal agency, and the agency gets to decide whether the actions of the companies were appropriate or not. Now, the NLRB is a really complicated example, because on the one hand, it suggests that federal agencies can really get into the nitty gritty. It doesn't have to necessarily be an, a really long judicial process. You can have um, local boards that are making quick decisions about important cases, something like what the Facebook oversight board is doing, but government and um, you would have much more lower courts. You wouldn't just have one super court. Uh, That's not how the NLRB operates. On the other hand, the history of the NLRB has been of shifting political wins and really inconsistent enforcement and decision making. And so maybe it's also a cautionary tale for the problems sometimes with federal agencies, although I don't think those problems are inevitable at all. And so 
yeah, I just, I think there are regulatory solutions we could imagine. So I'm not saying that these regulatory questions are easily answered, but I do think there's a whole range of possibilities out there, but beyond just trusting in corporate beneficence. You've sketched out some really interesting directions that this could go. And I, I do think it's worth sort of getting down to brass tacks and saying, okay, but where, you know, if we tried to put this into action, where would it actually end up given the composition of the current Supreme Court and the judiciary uh-huh. as a whole? What is your thinking about to what extent there's a, a necessity to sort of I don't know, be be less ambitious, play it a little closer to the chest, given, as as you discussed earlier, the Roberts Court's view of the First Amendment? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure even leaving aside the judicial politics question, if we're ready for federal regulation of content practices, because my sense of what's happening now, although, again, I may, I'm happy to hear other views, but You know, I think that one of the reasons why people were kind of happy that the social media companies were taking action is because we're just not sure they just I think there's just a a, maybe relief that someone is making decisions, someone's figuring something out, because I just I think there's a lot of uncertainty about what the rules of the road for the digital public sphere should be. I think maybe there is this view that the speech on the platforms is more dangerous than speech in the real public sphere, which is interesting. And I don't know what I think about it, but it's it's not it's certainly plausible. But if that's the case, then what how should we define incitement and what should the rules be for threats and what should the rules be for profanity and what should the rules be for obscenity? I think this is all pretty unclear and part because we we are still really at the early stages of this new era of communication, this new form of communication. And so I don't know if we really would want Congress to act right now, because it's kind of early days. And so my preference would be for there to be some collective, public-facing, transparent body (laughs) group of made up of the platforms, and then maybe, no, definitely representatives from civil society come together and really try and think about what are the ideal rules of the road. I mean, And then maybe concurrently, I think Congress should be enacting content neutral regulations to give users more due process rights and to require more transparency of the platform so that we have the information necessary to try and figure out what's working well and what's not working well that then this group that I'm imagining um, can use to try and figure out what are the more specific content rules that should apply to the digital public sphere. And there, yes, as soon as Congress steps in and does anything more than sneeze when it comes to the social media companies, there is going to be a First Amendment challenge. I think if Congress were to enact content-based regulations of the social media companies, they would say to the social media companies, you have to allow this kind of speech or you may not allow this kind of speech. I think that would be a very difficult form of federal action to defend given the Roberts Court's understanding of the First Amendment. But if it's acting in a content neutral manner, right, it's really not favoring or disfavoring any kind of speech, but it's simply requiring certain minimum due process rights or transparency obligations, given the existing political wins. I'm just not sure that that would be struck down as unconstitutional. And there's lots and lots of arguments that (laughs) I'm freely offering my services to Congress if it chooses to act in this way. There's lots of arguments I can imagine making grounded in precedent for why this is permissible kinds of action for Congress to uh, undertake. And I think not only is that more feasible when we when we think about the politics of the First Amendment, I also think that's preferable. I think we are right now still very much in the early stages and we would it'd be bad for Congress to act too quickly when it comes to restricting or 
requiring certain kinds of content choices on behalf of the platforms. So you heard it here first, folks. Uh, Genevieve has kindly offered her services to Congress. Um, they, be careful, they made you know our congressional listeners. I'm sure of, of whom I'm sure we have many. Oh, uh, so many. Yeah, might take you up on that. I, look, I think I broadly agree with basically everything you've said, but I'm a heretical Australian that doesn't even have a free speech right. And you know, when you say something like the Facebook Oversight Board, but the government, I can hear our American listeners fainting as they listen to this. And so I, you know, I, I am concerned that th- th- that that might not be a starter. Okay, well, two uh, two things to say. So one is when I said the Facebook Oversight Board, but government. <laughs> I don't want uh, listeners to faint. So we might imagine <laughs> that's good. <laughs> we might imagine no government. So I don't really understand why the EFF, the ACLU, Knight are not convening right now a board, a group to do just this, like of their own nice private hearts, private but public spirited hearts, and inviting Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. But why is that any better? Well, because so two reasons. So one is these uh, organizations do not have an underlying profit motive. And two, presumably, right, if they are inviting all the platforms collectively and subjecting them, forcing everyone in the same room to have a conversation that is transparent and subject to public criticism, surely that's better than it being Facebook making decisions arbitrarily for Facebook? No? Well, I'm not super uh, convinced that uniform rules for all social media platforms is actually a better world. And second, I'm not, like, I love the people at the AFF and the Knight Institute, as you know, but I'm not sure that their legitimacy to make decisions is much better than a lot of the experts that have been put on the oversight board. So I don't know that they would actually garner a lot more trust or or have democratic credentials that were, were more accepted. Yeah. I suppose if we we also think about the the sort of the history of these kinds of private um, collective self-regulation, it's true that the history is not a wonderful one. I mean, the history of movie self-censorship is a bad one where all the movie theaters got together. And so I don't want it to just be the social media companies. I want there to be other incentives and other kinds of actors in the room. But I don't know how without having to incur a huge battle, we would make this right now a government process. Uh, without raising all kinds of First Amendment problems. All right. Well, I think that, you know, one of the reasons we often don't have these conversations is that uh, First Amendment doctrine, as it's often seen, is sort of understood as closing them off. But as you've just shown, we we absolutely should not let it do that. So thank you so much for coming on. Sure. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.